This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, with all the latest mental health related news, bringing you the latest having to do with the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits and making sense of the latest news about research into mental illness and treatments for it that may be developed along the way, trying to better educate the general public about mental illness and reduce the stigma of having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. And this edition of Psychiatry Today is pre-recorded for airing initially at uh, 7 p.m. Wednesday, May 27th, 2015. Hope you enjoyed your Memorial Day weekend and that it was also safe and you thought about those who gave the ultimate sacrifice for our country. Uh, Don't think we'll have a veteran's mental health update on tonight's show, but you know that's a regular feature of Psychiatry Today if you're a regular listener. Starting today, though, we're going to talk about an interesting fact about Alzheimer's disease. When most people think of that, they think about the memory loss. That seems to be, of course, the hallmark of that memory starts to go. But it turns out, and this may be very, very important as we have such a large group, the baby boomer generation, entering the age group that will be developing Alzheimer's disease, uh, it turns out that memory loss in and of itself may not always be the first sign of Alzheimer's disease. While memory loss is thought to be a classical first sign of Alzheimer's disease, some middle-aged people and even younger seniors may initially experience different cognitive problems, such as trouble with language or problem-solving, this according to a large United States study. Researchers review data on early symptoms for almost 8,000 Alzheimer's patients and found one in four people under the age of 60 had a chief complaint unrelated to memory, though memory was by far still the most common problem overall. The non-memory first cognitive symptoms were more common in the younger Alzheimer's disease patients. Tests which explore and investigate these non-memory cognitive problems should be used so that non-memory deficits are not overlooked. Alzheimer's is a brain disorder that gradually destroys memory and thinking skills and eventually leaves people unable to carry out simple tasks like dressing or eating. The disease is the most common cause of dementia among older adults and afflicts more than 5 million Americans according to the National Institutes of Health. 
inside the brain, Alzheimer's is associated with abnormal clumps known as amyloid plaques and tangled bundles of fibers, often called tau or tangles, neurofibrillary tangles. Scientists suspect that the damage begins in an area of the brain called the hippocampus. This is a part of the brain in the temporal lobe and it's involved in memory. Researchers reviewed neurological test results from a large United States database of Alzheimer's patients to see whether the early symptoms people reported differed by age. On average, patients were 75 years old when they first sought treatment for Alzheimer's, though they ranged in age from 36 to 110. Most of them had mild to moderate dementia. Among the patients who reported cognitive difficulties as their first symptoms, the proportion citing something other than memory shrank with increasing age. One in five patients in their 60s cited difficulties unrelated to memory, but this dropped to one in 10 for people in their 70s. Because Alzheimer's can only be definitively diagnosed after death by looking for tangles and plaques on the brain during an autopsy, this study, like others exploring the disease, runs the risk of including at least some patients who don't actually have the condition. This study was published in the journal Alzheimer's and Dementia. Understanding how Alzheimer's symptoms might surface in younger patients is crucial for diagnosing them sooner and starting treatment at a point where it can do the most good. Couldn't agree more. As it stands now, the vast majority of the time when people are diagnosed, the damage is so far advanced that what treatments we have are really not going to do a whole lot of good. And in fact, the medications that are approved for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease have only been tried in people for whom the symptoms are obvious, and therefore you're already dealing with fairly advanced disease. If earlier signs could be delineated and uh, explored with patients, then perhaps the treatments could be started sooner. Uh, we know from treatment of older people with more obvious memory problems that the earlier you start the medications, the more they do for the longer period of time. But as always, uh, this study shows <clears throat> what uh, has been going on for the last several years now. It's that the problem with Alzheimer's, we need to diagnose it sooner and begin treatment sooner if we're going to make any impact on it at all. All right, another important article I found over this past week relating to mental health issues. And uh, this article got a fair amount of attention in the media. It was uh, mentioned uh, in the wire services, in the newspapers. It is that sleep apnea has been linked to depression in men. Severe obstructive sleep apnea and excessive daytime sleepiness 
are associated with an increased risk of depression in men, according to a new community-based study of Australian men. This was presented at the 2015 American Thoracic Society International Conference. An association between sleep apnea and depression has been noted in some earlier studies. This study in a large community-based sample of men confirms a strong relationship even after adjustment for a number of other potential risk factors. The study involved 1,875 men aged between 35 and 83 who were assessed for depression at two time points over a five-year period. A random sample of 857 men without previously diagnosed obstructive sleep apnea underwent at-home polysomnography, that is uh, uh, more commonly known as a sleep study, and they filled out a questionnaire called the Epworth Sleepiness Scale, which is a standard measure of the degree to which people experience daytime sleepiness, which could be due to sleep apnea or uh, other causes as well. After adjustment for potential confounders, previously undiagnosed severe obstructive sleep apnea was associated with an increased prevalence of depression and also excessive daytime sleepiness was associated with an increased prevalence of depression. Men who had both previously undiagnosed sleep apnea, either mild or moderate or severe, and excessive daytime sleepiness had four to five times greater odds of having depression than men without either condition. Both previously diagnosed sleep apnea and previously undiagnosed sleep apnea were significantly associated with the recent development of depression. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with what sleep apnea is, I'll just explain it briefly. The sufferer of sleep apnea usually, but not always, snores very loudly in their sleep due to some abnormality of their airway. And periodically throughout the course of the night, the snoring is interrupted by dead silences during which the person ceases to breathe, literally. This can go on 10, 15, 20, 30 seconds occasionally, but not usually longer. And at the end of this breathless period, if you will, there's usually a time when the brain kicks in and says, no, we are going to take a breath and we're going to do it right now. And at this point, the bed partner would hear an even louder gasping, gulping, snorting sound when breathing resumes and then back to the previous pattern of loud snoring. Now, the patient with sleep apnea may not be aware that there's any disturbance in their sleep at all, even though their sleep is usually disturbed, say, 14, 15, or more times per hour. For all they know, they've slept through the night without interruption. But the problem is that their sleep has not been restful or restorative 
and they're tired during the day no matter how much they've slept. And we know from other research that sleep apnea is associated with very serious health problems. It's a risk factor for high blood pressure and therefore a risk for heart attack and stroke. And this is not the first time there's been an association between sleep apnea and depression. But what's interesting about this study is that diagnosed or not, they found an increased risk of depression in men with sleep apnea and excessive daytime sleepiness as well. So it's very important if sleep apnea is suspected to get it treated, go to a sleep lab, have a sleep study, use the main treatment, which is a CPAP machine, stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. Well, we're going to take a break here. When we come back, we'll have more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app, the sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. Understanding health insurance is becoming more challenging. If you currently have insurance, you've probably noticed that it costs more to see your doctor. And if you're able to keep your doctor, it takes longer to get an appointment. The bad news is this trend is projected to continue. Your costs will likely continue to rise, while your health care choice and access will continue to fall. The good news is Peachtree ENT Center has the answer to this problem. We believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. We are committed to working with you, and we specialize in providing affordable care for patients without insurance, those who are underinsured, and those with high deductibles or catastrophic coverage, and we offer same-day appointments. You no longer have to choose between staying healthy and paying bills because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your source for all mental health-related news. Next up, we have From the Brain to the Immune System, How Stress Pirates Your Whole Body. I think a rather colorful but still eloquent way of describing the problem and what stress does to us. And... Um, <clears throat> A good way to 
remind us that the brain has so many intimate connections to the immune system. Things that we've only just begun to scratch the surface of. And uh, I think this follows nicely on the heels of a, a wonderful article that I talked about last week in terms of uh, the, the mind-body connection and how this whole idea of mental versus physical really is specious. It's all one entity. Well, in any case, let's take a look here at uh, this article again, The Immune System, How Stress Pirates Your Whole Body. You've probably heard that some stress is good for you. Maybe it's pressure from your dad, the college basketball star to do well in the week's big game, or perhaps it's the weight of an impending deadline nudging you to finish a big project. Stress can be a powerful tool, unavoidable and beneficial at times. Short-term stress can be valuable in situations that require an immediate response. When you're preparing for an exam, the anxiety you feel will motivate you to focus on your work, or stress can help push you when you're trying a new activity where you may be fearful, producing a life-saving flight-or-fight response when you feel you're in immediate danger. But acute stress and chronic stress, which lasts longer over a longer period of time without there being an immediate threat, can invoke a sense of danger and some serious effects on the body. From crying to sweating, panic attacks to mental breakdowns, and even physical illness. Biological, biologically speaking, since caveman days, our bodies have been primed to respond to stressors indicating danger, even though danger today no longer includes saber-toothed tigers. If you don't immediately tap into calming powers after a stressful situation, such as meditation, yoga, sleep, or whatever works for you, your body will enter the fight-or-flight mode with intense stress on a short-term basis, your body thinks there might be a threat, which triggers a release of chemicals. You've got fast-acting adrenaline affecting every organ in the body. Your cortisol levels are rising. That's the main stress hormone. And at the same time, the autonomic nervous system is also triggered. This prepares us for threats. Now within that autonomic nervous system, there is the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system, which work in tandem during your average day. The sympathetic system works to overcome the threat, and that is your average stressor. What happens is your lungs expand to ready the body for movement, and non-essential functions, like the digestive system, shut down to funnel glucose to the muscles you prepare to flee. Your heart rate rises. Let's say your stress is work-related. You go home. You meditate, do yoga, take a nap, 
this person can usually recover quickly. The parasympathetic nervous system is activated, telling your body to calm down. Think about it like a lullaby or like a car where you brake, accelerate, brake, accelerate. Your heart rate slows, your eyes undilate, your body releases energy. However, sometimes during periods of acute stress, the switch for the sympathetic nervous system gets jammed on. This means you're in an extended version of fight-or-flight mode. Non-essential processes will continually be in shutdown mode from digestion to immune function. You're not worried about fighting a cold virus when your body perceives an immediate threat and you're suffering acute stress. This can happen if you're stuck in prolonged stress mode. Maybe a big project at work is taking up all your time or a troubled relationship is requiring all your energy. Your body may perceive the rigors of these situations as immediate danger. If you interpret getting very little sleep and less food as life-threatening, then that can trigger a panic attack. It's because your system is being triggered to fight, but you're not. You're just sitting there with your heart pumping out of control. And everyone responds to varying degrees of psychological stress differently. Our systems are so unique physiologically. We all have our own internal needs, sleeping well and eating well for our own bodies, and they have massive implications on our health. If these needs aren't being met adequately, you can have a full-blown incident. I want to go back to the example they cited. Someone has work-related stress. This is a very common situation in our society in this day and age. And in fact, something I see very, very commonly in the patients in my practice. I would say at least 85%, if not more, uh, of the patients who come to see me and other doctors like me are doing so because they have too much stress either at work from their job or at home from their relationship and in some cases both. So take the person who has work-related stress. They come home and let's say they don't have an outlet. They don't meditate. They don't do yoga. They can't or won't take a brief nap. They have nothing else that they do to sort of decompress with stress. This is how their sympathetic nervous system response can get stuck, as it were. <clears throat> now, there's more to it. If stress is not intense or acute for a time, but instead it's slow and steady and chronic over time, you can also encounter some major health problems. This is a buzzy topic of study right now. Stress day in and day out on end can change the brain chemistry. And it has huge implications for our immune system. Scientists call this study psychoneuroimmunology. 
where stress can actually alter the immune system in a big way. There are several stress-related hormones, inflammatory proteins, that are brought on by increased levels of cortisol. They're called cytokines. Now, these proteins transport information throughout the body, and particularly important among the cytokines are those called the interleukins. You've heard of interferons. Uh, they're more famous, uh, known from immune treatments for chronic diseases, such as hepatitis C. Well, interleukins are also a type of cytokine. Now, when you are chronically stressed, these chemicals are overpopulating, overworking, and sending mixed messages throughout the body. Your immune system doesn't know what to do with all those messages, leading to real, worsening, even lasting changes in immune function. This is why we often see autoimmune conditions develop after periods of chronic stress. Sometimes we see Crohn's disease, which is an inflammatory bowel disease, and sometimes we see shingles, which is an, a stress-related activation of a herpes zoster virus infection, uh, which we're often first exposed to when we have an outbreak of chickenpox. Ruminating in moderate stress long-term can have a catastrophic impact. It can lead to a host of destructive health issues, depression, headaches, and gastrointestinal problems like heartburn, colitis, and irritable bowel syndrome. It can also impact your ability to concentrate and can cause insomnia. Your ability to focus on work and relationships will also be affected. Now, what is ruminating, for those of you who may not know what that is, it's the tendency to persistently and consistently dwell on negative and pessimistic thoughts and self-critical thoughts related to the stress someone has in their life. The bottom line, whether chronic or acute, stress is a big deal if you don't find an outlet. The best way to handle stress is to expel it. Outdoor exercise is foremost among the mechanisms to dispel your stress. Exercise can reduce stress hormones, flooding the body with endorphins that improve mood, boost energy, and provide a healthy distraction. Yoga is another effective outlet for your anxiety. If you cannot find a solution that works for you, Seeking a therapist's advice can be helpful, especially before stress becomes chronically debilitating. However, you have more control over your stress than you realize. You have the power to consciously activate that parasympathetic nervous system, which will calm you down. People always say, just breathe. It's actually really true. Something as simple as slowing down your breath is a really sound physiological strategy. When your body is dumping adrenaline, there's a feedback loop. Continue to stew in stress, and you're telling your body there's an imminent threat. 
Practice methods of calmness, and you're signaling that all is well. The moment you break the pattern of stress is the moment you send a message to your brain that you are okay, slowing down that release of chemicals. So next time you're stressed, remember, you're in control and channel those inner superpowers. We're going to take another commercial break here. We'll be right back with more mental health-related news on Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today, your host, Dr. Scott Bay. Before the commercial, we were talking about the effects of stress and the brain and the immune system. Well, this next item talks about how financial stress can take a toll on women's hearts. It's well known that stress and heart attacks are linked, but it's not clear whether any particular kind of stress carries a greater risk for heart health. Now, new research suggests that for women, money problems may be at the top of the list. Using data from the Women's Health Study, a long-term survey that followed participants for an average of nine years, researchers analyzed the stressful experiences of 267 women whose average age was 56 who had suffered a heart attack sometime over the study period. For comparison, they also examined 281 women with similar risk factors like age and smoking habits who did not experience a heart attack. At the beginning of the study, the women had provided information about stressful life events, such as incurring an injury, losing a job, or discovering a spouse was unfaithful that had taken place within the past five years. Of the items on the survey, three were classified as traumatic, a life-threatening illness, a serious assault, or the death of a child or spouse. It turned out that financial problems doubled women's risk of having a heart attack, 
and that women making less than $50,000 per year were especially susceptible to the effects of stressful events across the board. Experiencing a traumatic life event also increased the risk of heart attack by 65% regardless of women's income. Scientists still know relatively little about the factors that affect heart disease in women who haven't had heart problems previously. Much of the prior research related to negative life events was done in persons who have a history of heart attacks and in men. Just like stress affects men and women in different ways, so does heart disease, which is currently the number one cause of death for women in the United States, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention here in Atlanta. Although men are more likely to suffer a heart attack, female heart attack patients tend to fare worse. About 25% of women who have a heart attack will die within a year, compared with 20% of men, and a 2014 study found that among younger people, in particular, women have longer hospital stays than men after suffering a heart attack. On average, women also tend to develop heart disease about 10 years later than men. Previous research has suggested that some of this gap might have to do with insulin, the hormone that regulates blood sugar. Insulin resistance, a condition that can lead to high blood sugar levels, may increase the risk of heart disease. But a 2013 study found that women's bodies seem to handle insulin resistance better than men's, leaving them with fewer of the condition's negative effects. This most recent study, presented on April 29th at a meeting of the American Heart Association, illustrates the need for further gender-specific research on heart disease risk factors, particularly in women who also have limited socioeconomic resources. At the biological level, adverse experiences, including psychological ones, can lead to increased inflammation and cortisol levels there, that, that stress hormone again, the big villain there, cortisol. The interplay between gender, heart disease, and psychological factors is poorly understood. So research like this is important, but to me the conclusion that financial stress is especially difficult in causing heart problems in women, uh, I found very interesting because it's always been my observation over the years that when women are looking at potential financial hardship, uh, they tend to take it harder than do men. Um, and this comes from experience in dealing with patients who have lost their job and are facing periods of financial stress and increased financial stress and hardship uh, and how they deal with it and how they relate that their spouse deals with it. Uh, it definitely has been my consistent observation that women have a harder time dealing with 
the loss of income and the resulting financial stress uh, and uh, hardship uh, in terms of not being as able to cope with it. Uh, so hopefully more research like this will give physicians greater insights into how women react to stress. And we know we already need to make more progress in terms of diagnosing and treating heart disease in women compared with men. Next up on tonight's show. Well, this article caught my eye because we're getting into the political season. We're seeing that a large number of candidates, at least on the Republican side, are declaring themselves and throwing their hat into the ring for the 2016 presidential election. And let the mudslaying and the rumor-mongering begin. Now, the article is called Rumors Have It. Trying to correct political myths may only entrench them further. Now, before I say this, just a general disclaimer. The article tries to be nonpartisan, and that's the way that I'm presenting it. So please do not take this as being partisan uh, in either direction. It is merely meant to be a look at how political myths propagate themselves uh, in the general public and some of the psychological insights into that process. So with that background, let's get into the article. Bad news, fans of rational police discourse. A study by an MIT researcher shows that attempts to debunk political rumors may only reinforce their strength. That is bad news uh, indeed, isn't it? Rumors are sticky, according to Adam Berinsky, a professor of political science at MIT and author of a paper detailing the study called Corrections are Difficult and in some cases can even make the problem worse. More specifically, Berinsky found in an experiment concerning the Affordable Care Act that rebuttals of political rumors about the supposed existence of death panels sometimes increased belief in the myth among the public. He says pure repetition, we know from psychology, makes information more powerful. In the case of the so-called death panels, Berinsky's research indicates that the best way to counteract these rumors is to find a political figure who could credibly debunk the rumor based on their broader political stand. A Republican senator, for instance. As Berinsky sees it, it is harder for a democracy to function well in a public environment pervaded by political myths. The non-existent death panels were alleged to have decision-making power over whether citizens received health care. In reality, the Affordable Care Act had provisions to pay doctors for counseling patients about their end-of-life options, 
something they were already doing directly, the only difference being they could actually code for this discussion and get reimbursed for having it. It makes communication between politicians and citizens kind of difficult if these people think politicians are trying to kill their grandmothers. The facts are that it enables a physician to actually build insurance for having the discussion, what is it that you want for your end-of-life care? And that could include do anything and everything and employ all heroic measures at your disposal to save my life no matter what the cost. Or it could include if I'm near the end, just let me go, don't do anything heroic or anywhere in between. Now, the paper containing the results, uh, actually I misspoke before, is called Rumors, Truths, and Reality, the Study of Political Misinformation, is to be published in the British Journal of Political Science. Berinsky conducted the experiment with three separate waves of public opinion surveys in 2010, encompassing nearly 2,000 voters. The surveys tested multiple methods of debunking rumors about the Affordable Care Act on multiple categories of respondents. Among attentive voters who responded to the survey, 57% initially rejected the rumors about death panels. After seeing a nonpartisan correction of the myth, those figures changed slightly to a 60% rejection rate. But a Republican-sourced correction raised that rate to 69%, while a Democratic-based correction only led to a 60% rejection rate. In each scenario, the acceptance rate of the rumor went up, while only the Republican-based debunking markedly changed the rejection rate. Other slices of the survey group yielded similar patterns in which both acceptance and rejection rates rose, with Democratic-sourced debunking efforts being the least effective. While Berinsky conducted follow-up surveys of voters weeks later, he found that 43% of all respondents rejected the rumor. All right, we'll take uh, another closer look at this data and its implications in a few moments after we come back from this next commercial break. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www 
www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Your host, Dr. Scott Bay, with all the latest mental health-related news. And we're talking about a study of political rumors, looking at how people respond to them based on who is trying to debunk them and what political persuasion they come from. Uh, the data are a little bit thick, and we were getting to that right before the break, so just back up a little bit and say that when the researchers did a follow-up survey of the participants several weeks later, what they found was that 43% of all respondents rejected the rumor. Now, when there was a nonpartisan debunking of the rumor, the rejection rate was 51%. But when there was a debunking stemming from a Republican source, remember the rumor is about a Democratic issue, the sources yielded a 58% rejection rate, while a Democratic correction led to 53% of people rejecting the rumor. So what this shows is when it's someone from the opposite political persuasion debunking the rumor, that seems to have more credibility. A reason for the results, Berinsky surmises, is apparently minimal belief among contemporary voters in the existence of neutral sources of information. And I think that's the key finding. No one perceives any of the sources as nonpartisan. The experiment also produced new data about the attachment of the electorate to myths in general. He asked respondents whether they believed in any or all of seven different myths, six of which concerned politics, such as the myth that President Barack Obama is a Muslim, or the rumor that vote fraud in Ohio swung the 2004 presidential election to then-President George W. Bush. Only 5% of the population believed four or more of the seven rumors, but on average, people believed 1.8 of the rumors. As Berinsky sees it, that means belief in seemingly outlandish ideas is not the province of a relatively small portion of uninformed, conspiracy-minded voters. It's not that there are some people who believe a lot of crazy things, he says. There are a lot of people who believe some crazy things. Other scholars say the study is an important addition to the academic literature on political rumors and voter knowledge. In that vein, this paper is part of a larger project Berinsky has undertaken 
about political rumors and public opinion. He is currently working on a book project on the topic as well, public, to be published by Princeton University Press. There's a lot more interest about this in political science and psychology than there was 10 years ago. He believes practitioners, politicians, strategists, consultants, and more seem increasingly attuned to the research that scholars are producing in this vein as well. There is a lot more interest in trying to find out how people think rather than assuming you know how they think. Well, you can be sure that with the upcoming campaign season leading up to the presidential election in November of 2016, that political advertisers and pundits will be paying close attention to what affects what people think of certain political rumors. And this research may give them a little more nuanced or subtle approach other than just, well, uh, repetition results in eventual belief. All right, well, let's turn our attention to another issue that relates to some current events. Uh, we have the trial of James Holmes, the Aurora, Colorado movie theater shooter, going on in Colorado currently. He is clearly uh, suffering from psychotic mental illness and has suffered from delusions. And the key to his defense is that, yes, he committed the crimes, but he was delusional and psychotic at the time. Therefore, uh, he should be spared the death penalty. Well, it turns out that psychotic hallucinations and delusions rarely precede violence. Mass shootings at the hands of unhinged loners, such as those in Aurora, Colorado, and others in Santa Barbara, California, and Newtown, Connecticut, perpetuate a commonly held belief that mental illness triggers violent crimes. But a new study from the University of California at Berkeley shows that hallucinations and delusions associated with psychiatric disorders seldom foreshadow acts of aggression. In a painstaking review of 305 violent incidents in the United States, the researchers found that only 12% were preceded by psychosis, while numerous studies have found that brutality and bloodshed are more likely to be sparked by anger, access to firearms, and substance abuse. This latest analysis is the first to look at the regularity of psychosis-induced violence among the mentally ill. The results recently reported in the online edition of the journal Clinical Psychological Science challenge the media-fueled stereotype of homicidal mayhem High-profile mass shootings capture public attention and increase vigilance of people with mental illness. But the findings clearly show that psychosis rarely leads directly to violence. Researchers at the University of Virginia and Columbia University 
focused on the most violent patients tracked in the MacArthur Violence Risk Assessment Study, a major 1998 analysis of more than 1,100 offenders who had been discharged from psychiatric facilities. Specifically, the researchers looked at a subgroup of 100 high-risk patients who had been involved in two or more violent incidents in the year after they were discharged from a psychiatric facility to establish their mental states at the time they committed the acts of violence to examine the small group of people with repeated violence and see how consistently these violent incidents were caused by hallucinations and delusions. In addition to reviewing records, they interviewed former patients about what they were thinking and feeling immediately before they engaged in violence and sought the perspectives of their friends and family members. The results revealed that psychosis preceded only 12% of the violent acts they committed following their release. Moreover, while psychosis drove one violent incident, it was rarely implicated in subsequent ones. The study defines violence as battery resulting in physical injury, sexual assault, and assaults or threats with a weapon. Mental illnesses ranged from schizophrenia and bipolar disorder to severe anxiety and depression. While mass shootings account for a fraction of United States gun deaths, each one can influence public policy. For example, the 2014 shooting spree in Isla Vista near Santa Barbara, in which 24-year-old Elliot Rogers killed six people, spurred the U.S. House of Representatives to pass an amendment to boost funding to add more mental health records to the nation's background check system for firearm purchases. And after the 2013 Sandy Hook Elementary shooting in Newtown, in which 20-year-old Adam Lanza killed his mother, 20 children, and six school staff members, New York passed the Secure Ammunition and Firearms Enforcement Act, which requires mental health professionals to report clients who could harm themselves or others so those names can be matched against the gun permit database. Meanwhile, the murder trial underway for James Holmes, who opened fire on a Batman movie audience in Aurora in 2012, killing 12. Again, he's pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. In the wake of that shooting, Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper signed a bill allocating $20 million for an expansion of mental health services, including walk-in crisis centers and a 24-hour hotline. That bill also created a task force to look at strengthening existing laws for involuntary commitment for mental health treatment. Mental health professionals and advocates warn that these high-profile cases perpetuate the stigma of mental illness and keep people who are suffering from psychiatric disorders from disclosing their condition and seeking help. In fact, they say people with mental illness are more likely to be victims of violence than vice versa. A study published in February in the American Journal of Public Health found that fewer than 5% of the 120,000 gun-related killings in the United States between 2001 and 2010 were perpetrated by people diagnosed with mental illness. 
and that the mentally ill are far more likely than the average person to be victims of violent crime. None of this detracts from the message that people with mental illness need access to psychiatric services. But it's important to remember that risk factors for violence, such as substance abuse, child maltreatment, neighborhood disadvantage, are mostly shared by people with and without mental illness, and that's what we should be focused on if maximizing public safety is our goal. In other words, looking for ways that we can reduce gun-related violence or indeed um, any other types of violence as well. Uh, it should be obvious that there are so many cases of violence, be they mass violence or otherwise, that would not have been prevented by laws that mandate background checks for the purchase of a firearm and even those which advocate greater mental health specific screening for those background checks. Um, I think efforts made, uh, the efforts uh, rather that are aimed at uh, reducing the impact of the mentally ill in terms of these violent crimes are not necessarily going to prevent a lot from happening. Um, instead, the only solution may be better safety and security in public places. And with that, we're going to wrap up tonight's show. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together next week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.